Good morning. I'm glad to be here. It's great to be on the same stage as the great band that helped mark us out with, uh, from Kentucky Christian, I'll have to say university. When I went, it was Kentucky Christian College. Now, Alex, in his sense of humor, decides in the e- how many people get the e-newsletter and read it? Um, I'm not a scholar. I did go to Bible college. I'm very happy to have spent the time there, actually learned something while I was there, and to be able to learn to study the Bible and then be able to share the insights with you. Now, we have up here a picture, or we will. Does anybody know who that is? If you do, raise your hand or jump up and shout. Anybody want to guess? Okay, that's a good guess because it does look like Andrew Jackson, but it's not. It is Alexander Campbell. Now, does anybody know who Alexander Campbell is? Okay, the few might. Alexander Campbell was one of the leaders of the Restoration Movement that took place in the early 1800s. It was the idea of restoring the New Testament church, going back to the Bible and to the Bible only. Now, the Restoration Movement is a whole other sermon, and... I hope that you read, when you read, you brought your notes, your, your pad of paper and your pen, because as we go through this information, I'm going to share with you an, an awful lot of information. To cover the last days in two sermons is an impossible task. I'm going to try my best, but I'm not going to cover everything to the depth that it needs to be covered. So what I hope to do as I talk is be able to Ask questions within your mind, to challenge your mind. I'm going to be presenting some things in a way that you may never have heard. There's a lot of misconceptions about the last days. And I'm going to talk about some things that other people don't talk about. I'm going to talk about it in a different way than they talk about. So hopefully as you take, so one of the notes you may want to make for yourself is what is the restoration movement? Guys around here like Norman and Gene and and Patrick and Alex and myself would share with you what the Restoration Movement is about because Polaris is part of that Restoration Movement. Now, the reason I brought up Alexander Campbell is because I want to bring up one fact about Alexander Campbell. You'll see here that he had a study outside of his mansion. His mansion happened to be a multi-level log cabin. Um a rather large building for the day. He was a very wealthy man. He was a sheep herder. um, And he built this study. Now, this study is a hectagonal building. And for you Steeler fans, that's Um, (laughs) six-sided. The only windows, except for those on the side lights of the door, are come down from above. The only piece of furniture in the room was a lectern in the center of the room. Now, that Back part of the building was added later, but up until the time that that was added, there was no heat in the building. There were shelves, except for the door, the, the side of the door. On the other side, five side, there were shelf, bookshelves from the floor to the ceiling. He would get out to the study at about 5 a.m. and stay there till about 10 o'clock every day. After his second wife, or his first wife died, he remarried. His second wife made him add on that back part which had a desk, a fireplace, you see the chimneys there, 
and a window on the far side that faced the house so she could look from the house and see that he was out there. But the man would study and study and study the Bible. He was a tremendous scholar and a very interesting man. One day, Alexander Campbell was asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus would return in one hour? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question. Think about yourself. If you were asked that question, what would you answer? His answer was kind of odd and very simple. He said, I would plant a tree. Now, of all the things you would do if you knew Jesus would return in one hour, why would you plant a tree? His answer, because that's what I was going to do anyway. He had studied He had built a relationship with Jesus. He didn't have to go around and scurry and apologize to all those people or take care of that long list of things. He was ready. And all he needed to do was what he was going to do anyhow. We need to approach Christ's return in that way, that we wouldn't need to change a thing. So often when we look at the last days, it's a frightening time. We're afraid of the last days. But as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul specifically talks about it being something to look forward to. As we look at the last days, there are things God wants us to clearly understand. So let's spend some time this week, this morning, talking about the clear teachings. Next week, we're going to enter in more into the theoretical. Today, we're going to talk about the last day defined. We're going to talk about what the phrase, the last days, means. There is a lot of misconception. It's a very simple phrase. Paul uses it several times. And I want us to understand exactly what we're talking about. Clear up those misconceptions. Then I want us to talk about a phrase in the Greek, love his appearing. So I want us to talk about loving his appearing. And then lastly, I want us to talk about and take a clear picture, a very clear picture from the scripture of the second coming of Christ. So, what is the last days? Now, if you got your pen and your paper, you may want to write this down. Because I'm going to call it an important biblical principle. I'm going to talk about a few of those here as we go forward here in the next few moments. An important biblical principle, you could call it an IPB if you want to shorten it. Because that important, first important biblical principle is that the Bible is a simple book. We try very hard to make it very complicated, but it truly is a simple book. When the New Testament was being written in Greek, at the same time, about the same time period, Homer was writing the Iliad and the Odyssey in classical Greek. In classical Greek, that was for the highbrows, for the highly educated. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Koine, the Greek word Koine, means common. It was not for the highly educated. It was for the ordinary, street-level person. You didn't have to go out and study Koine Greek. You already knew it because that's what you were raised with. It was simple. God wrote it in a simple language, one simple language. 
when you look through the Bible, there are two options, two choices, heaven or hell. How much more simple could you get than that? So you have one language, two choices. And the Bible is divided up into three distinct time periods. That's also an important biblical principle that's really helpful to understand, and it will help explain what the last days are all about rather simply. You have the first days, which took place between Adam and Moses, or the patriarchal period. Pretty much the book of Genesis and a little bit into the book of Exodus. God dealt directly with the patriarchs, the oldest living member of a family. He dealt with one person at a time. If you look through the Genesis and into Exodus. Then he goes to the middle days. From Moses to Jesus. The period of the law. The Mosaic law. There God deals through the law. Jesus was born, lived, and died as a Jew. He lived under this time period. And then, you probably figured it out, you have the last days. And that's from Jesus' return, from Jesus' resurrection to his return, the Christian time. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And how many more we have, we don't know. So that's what the last days are. Paul, when he's writing, gets the idea that the last days were going to take place in his lifetime. He made the assumption that Jesus was going to return in his, in his lifetime. He lived like Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. Pretty much an important principle there as well. Now, the last important biblical principle I want to talk about as before we go forward, is we're going to look at a scripture here in 2 Timothy 4, 8. And if you want to turn to that now, you can. It's going to be up on the screen in a moment. But the last important biblical principle that I want to talk about is that of what I call biblical tunnel vision. Often when we look at the Bible and study the Bible like a passage of scripture like we're going to look at here in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, we... Start with that section, one scripture, section of scripture, and then we look at the book that it's in, then we look at the chapter that it's in, just our chapter, then the book, then the which whether Old or New Testament, and then the whole Bible. That's not a bad way of looking at things, but it allows for us to make mistakes. Because what we end up doing is we look at that one scripture through that biblical tunnel. And we then begin to flavor all the other things we read from that one verse. So we have it backwards. What we need to be doing is take the whole Bible. Then look at whether it's in the Old or New Testament. Whether or not it's written historic, historical writing or whether it's poetry. In other words, whether it's literal or figurative, if you take a scripture that was literal and look at it as if it's figurative, you're going to make a serious mistake in understanding that passage of scripture. Same way, if you, if you have a figurative uh, scripture and you look at it, take it literally, serious mistakes will happen. So you take the whole Bible, the Testament, the type of writing, the book that it was written in, the chapter, 
And the first, and also include the time period it was written in. Is it in the first days, the middle days, or the last days? Because God dealt with people different ways during different time periods. You say, Keith, well, wait a minute here. You want me to understand the whole Bible to understand any one single verse. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that is a daunting task. It's a very difficult task. And I don't know anybody. Do you know anybody that knows the whole Bible? I don't. I've studied it and studied and studied it, and I can't say I know the whole Bible. But I can say that if you start today trying to understand the whole Bible and continue and work at it, you will get a greater and greater and greater chance of understanding the whole Bible. And the one thing you keep cautioning yourself about is watching out for that biblical tunnel vision, watching out so that you don't take one verse or one section of Scripture and begin to color the rest of the Bible from that. Very difficult, very easy to do, very difficult to prevent. Now, let's look a little bit here at 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, because we need to to not use biblical tunnel vision here because it's very easy to look at that one powerful section of Scripture, which we're going to read, but we have to take it within the context of the whole Bible. And one of the things we have to do is before we read chapter 4 is we have to read chapter 3. It's kind of neat. Chapter 3 does always come before chapter 4. And in there, Paul begins a discussion of the terrible and perilous conditions that are going to take place during the last days. Now, you just said that you're supposed to look forward to the last days, and now you're saying that it was terrible and perilous. They are. There are going to be, there were in Paul's day, terrible and perilous conditions, and those terrible and perilous conditions have gotten worse in our day, and they're going to continue to get worse. And that's the picture that Paul paints. But then in the middle of that discussion, he begins in the middle of the third chapter to talk to Timothy directly. Now, Timothy, Paul was Timothy's mentor. Paul, Timothy and Paul hung around together, and Paul taught Timothy over and over, and he's continuing in 1 Timothy and now in 2 Timothy, writing letters to him while Timothy is working as an evangelist in the town of Ephesus. And Paul is sending them this letter and sending them this charge. And in the middle of that charge is where we're going to pick up chapter 4. A very, very powerful scripture. So let's look at that together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when men will put not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great, themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, 
I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, if we're going to switch here and use that eighth verse here in the King James. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. The word there, longed for in the NIV, love, his appearing in the King James is a form of the word agape, which we know means love. Now you think about who's writing this. It's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, killed Christians. He breathed out slaughter against the church. He was single-handedly trying to destroy the church. He did horrific and awful things. He had a lot of reason to be fearful of standing before the righteous judge. But instead here, he is looking forward to the opportunity and he is loving the appearing of his king and his judge and his savior. He cannot wait. Paul feared, was, Paul was not fearing the return of Jesus, but loving his return and he couldn't, couldn't wait, he couldn't wait for Jesus to come back. Now, I want us to also take a look at a bunch of others because that idea of appearing appears other times. And it's Paul's way of using that specific word to signify the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that again and see some other scriptures that talk about the importance and the attitude we need to have about the last days, about the second coming of Jesus Christ. First of all, we have Matthew chapter 24, 44. And remember, I'm just going to throw these scriptures out here, bam, 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 write them down, go home, study them, take them in view of the, of the whole Bible. Don't just take them out of their context. For example, chapter 24 of Matthew, would you look at that? That chapter is divided up into two discussions that Jesus is having, and he kind of almost intertwines them where he talks about his second coming, and he talks about the fall of Jerusalem. And if you don't pay close attention, you can intertwine the two and misunderstand some of the things he's trying to accomplish. And here in verse 44, he says, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Just because Jesus is going to show up when we don't know he's going to show up doesn't mean we should be afraid of that, especially if we're ready. That's the idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Therefore, do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for Lord Jesus to be revealed. Be eager. Titus 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same word as we saw earlier. Hebrews 10.25 Let us not give up meeting together as some as are in the habit of doing, 
But let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day do you think he's talking about there? Judgment day? The day? Today, we're one day closer to the second coming of Christ than we were yesterday. Simple fact. And what should we be doing? Encouraging each other all the more. Not being afraid, but encouraging each other. And if Jesus doesn't come back in the next hour, tomorrow we'll be one day closer to the second coming than we are today. And what should we be doing? Encouraging each other all the more. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. We're to be ready, to be eager, to look for his glorious appearing, to encourage each other so that when he comes, we will be confident, not afraid. Now, I want us to take a very clear picture of a very interesting scripture that clearly tells us about the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It describes exactly what's going to take place. We don't have to wonder. There's no symbolism or hidden meaning. It's not hard to understand. It's simple. So let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will be, bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, the Apostle Paul, as we've already talked about, understood that he didn't need to be afraid of his past, but that he could boldly love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the reason he was able to do that was because of the relationship he had developed with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think, and it's my opinion, I don't think that anyone before or after the Apostle Paul had the level of relationship as the Apostle Paul had with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says here, according to his own, the Lord's own words. Now if you look and search through the scripture, you're not going to see this recorded any other place. So the only way the Apostle Paul could say that he got it was to get it straight from Jesus. 
And the Bible talks about a time when Paul was in, I call it, in Bible college for three years in Arabia, where he was taught by Jesus directly. And it must have been during that time that he received this directly from Jesus, to give that to us. So he fully understood it, and it's a very simple plan. It simply says, as Paul tells us, Jesus was here. Jesus will return. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those that are alive in Christ will join Christ and the others in the air. Most importantly, we are to encourage each other with these words. We are and we have been in the last days since Jesus' resurrection. We are not to be fearful of Christ's return, but anxious excited, like waiting for the best Christmas gift ever. Clearly, Jesus came, and clearly he's coming back for those who love his appearing. I can't wait.